In the 2002 SDCF symposium panel entitled Assembling the Team, leading directors, choreographers, producers, writers, designers, musical directors, general managers, and production stage managers examine the relationship between creating a successful production and assembling the group that serves as the director's production team. The following program is a recording of the panel that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director-Choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. I give you a good friend of the foundation, Mr. Arthur Barkley. You know most of the cast of characters of this panel, but we've been joined by some new people, Larry Fuller, Sally Moore, on this side, Chris Ashley, and down Dan Kelsey. So if you would welcome them. I'm not going to introduce them. You have the bios. I'd like to get right into the meat of this, which is really segueing from the previous panel. And I've asked a couple of our panel members, actually, to give you case histories of collaborations that they put together or were instrumental in assembling that were either very successful or dire failures. And uh, Marty, I'll ask you if you would start this off. Either one, success or failure, as Peter Sellers says, it's all the same. Well, I could, <laughs> this is a subject I'm kind of a maniac about. I don't want to go on too long, so stop me. Um, uh, I, in general, um, most of the shows I've been involved with from the beginning, musicals, uh, groups of people have worked together who have never worked together before. And that's not unintentional. Um, you know, it, it, it seems to be an unpopular feeling these days, but I grew up feeling that anytime you did a musical, you're supposed to go someplace where the musical's never been. Um, you know, I saw Crazy For You, I don't want to see somebody who imitates Crazy For You. I don't even want to see the next person to put a record album on the stage. I've seen that now. Um, and I think whatever you do, you have to be trying to take the form someplace. And so um, I think it's interesting to create a dynamic of, of people who are challenging each other. Um, and so usually uh, I've started with a playwright. I mean, the shows I've done are very character, with the exception of Fosse, are really character-driven. There's a lot of people in this business, especially book writers, who are good structurally. They're craftsmen. But I think you have to combine the art and the craft. And you have to combine language with the craft. Um, and so most of the shows I've started with a playwright, and what the playwright's done is gone off and written, as people do in the movies, a treatment. So let's start with Ragtime and, and, and Terrence McNally, which I think, you know, for me, it was a very successful collaboration. Um, and uh, 
you know, that was a script. Parents went off and wrote about a 60-page treatment based on Dr. Rowe's novel. And uh, the treatment, I would say, you know, maybe five pages of the treatment ended up in the show. But what he did was capture the voice of the show. We opened it on the we opened the book of the treatment, and on the first page, the uh, characters were talking about themselves in the third person, and it set up a whole narrative idea for the show and gave us a way to tell this 350-page novel in two hours or two and a half, three hours, I guess, of theater. And uh, and then in this case, I, I happened to be working for someone at the time who was um, very careful. <laughs> who he paid money to and who he worked with. And so we did something that uh, I never did before and I'll never do again, which is we gave eight teams of composers and lyricists a few thousand dollars and asked them to take Terence's treatment and write uh, four sample songs each. And we sat down with Dr. Rowan Terence in a room with these 32 songs and without identifying who the writers were, I listened to all the songs and uh, and unanimously, everybody wanted Lynn Aarons and Steve Flaherty to write the score. So by taking Terrence's, they had taken Terrence's initial concept of the show. And one of the things they provided was the opening number, Ragtime, which you know for me was one of the most successful numbers in the show. And that opening number was very much based on what Terrence had done in the treatment. So by Terrence giving a voice to the show, the composer and lyricist had known what the voice is going to be from the show from the moment they started. So when they came together as a team to collaborate, they all shared the same vision of the show from the first moment. Now, it was a vision that started from one guy, and that's one of the things I believe in the show, that uh, one of the three people writing the show, uh, if it's three, but one of the three people has to have a vision that the other people all fall in line uh, behind. Now, interestingly enough, I would say in that particular collaboration, um, in some strength, there's always a leader of the collaboration. And on different shows, it's different people. On Spider-Woman, it was Fred Ebb. On Sweet Smell of Success, it was uh, Heitner. But on Ragtime, even though Terrence provided the voice, Lynn Aaron sort of became the leader of the group. She had the best sense of the, how to tell the whole story. And, uh, and she would take the lead, and the other people would fall in line behind her. But I think that came because Terrence inspired her. And so I think it's an interesting way to put a collaboration. Then how did it fall into place? The, the director, the rest of the creative team, how did that process fall into place after that? On that show, uh, and, and of course it's different on a lot of On that show, there was a draft of the show before the director got involved. Uh, and is that usual? No, I mean, you know, Sweet Smell director was there from the beginning, and he really had the vision of the show. Uh, Fosse directors changed half a dozen times <laughs> over the course of the show, so there were a lot of different visions along the way. Um, you know, I think shows are like kids. Everyone's different. Everyone has its own personality, and you got to treat it accordingly. Um, and on Ragtime. Um, I think even when Galati became involved, uh, and Galati is an incredible inspiration. I mean, he's a teacher above all else. He's a professor at Northwestern and 
He's a teacher to the actors and everybody involved. I still think Lynn maintained the vision of the show. And throughout the whole process, she was the guiding force, and people followed her vision of the show, and everybody was serving her vision. I'm going to come back to you in a minute, Marty. I asked uh, Marty also to think of a collaboration that was spectacularly unsuccessful, because we can also learn from that. But I'd like to jump over to Todd Haynes, who represents a nonprofit producing organization and a different kind of structure from the commercial world, and ask him the same question about collaboration. Um, well, I've had much less experience than Marty has had in terms of creating beginning the musical, which I think is a, where a lot of these collaborations sort of get put together. Um, the only one I could think of where I felt provisorially that I had a significant impact um, was, oddly enough, with Cabaret, because we were supposed to do Cabaret. It's a long story, but Cabaret was supposed to happen a year before it actually ended up happening. And, uh, and yet another one of our real estate disasters six weeks before the rehearsals were supposed to start, the landlord decided that rather than giving us the space, they were going to give it to Ron Delson to do rock hunting. And so that production of Cabaret, which you never heard of, uh, never happened. Uh, we lost a lot of money and it was sort of catastrophic. And um, at that time, Cabaret was supposed to be Sam Mendes with the entire artistic team from the Dunmar Warehouse, where he had done a very small production of Cabaret choreographer, designer, musical director, all British, which just sort of rubbed me the wrong way anyway. Um, you know, not just because I would rather all things be equal higher Americans, but also because I just, there was just this sense of like this whole sort of group of people coming in and taking over. And, but I had no choice because I really wanted to do Sam Mendes' production of Cabaret. And of course, this is before Sam Mendes was Sam Mendes. But I still, this was what the authors wanted and this is what I wanted. So a year passed. And lo and behold, we actually were able to get a space to do cabaret, and uh, now where you're in town is playing. Um, and so I said to Sam, basically, to make a long story short, we will do this, but you have to use Americans now. I'm not going to do this again. And so we sort of forced him to use Americans and started his collaboration with Rob Marshall, who was his co-director and choreographer, and with um, with William Ivy Long and uh, design team Patrick Bacchiarella, the musical director, none of whom he knew before that. And I think in addition to being uh, a good collaboration and a very happy experience, obviously artistically successful, to be honest with you, I actually think they brought something to the project in addition to just their general talent that the other prior collaborators, as talented as they are, and this choreographer was Matthew Bourne, so these are talented men and women, but I actually think they brought something to the project which helped it, which was an American sensibility about the musical theater, which actually is slightly different um, than the British sensibility about the musical theater. And again, I won't bore you with what I mean by that. But I really think, and I think Sam feels this way now in retrospect, that putting those people in there actually enhanced what was probably going to be a great production, but made it even greater, um, as well as starting a nice relationship with all those people. Now Patrick Bacchiarella is his musical director on Gypsy, which he's doing next year. Me and Rob are fantastic friends. And so I felt good about that. And uh, that's the one that leads to Right. Uh, Todd, in your experience, does the director choose the rest of the creative team, or does the producer have the major hand in the costume designer lighting? Usually, uh, the, the, the trick is to find 
someone that both parties are happy with, but that the director does not feel uh, is being shoved down their throat. Because, you know, my feeling, and, and I, I may be different from uh, other producers, and I'm not even sure I'm right, but my feeling is that, you know, you sort of put your trust in this director, um, and for better or for worse, he or she is going to have people around him to look to for support. The designers, if it's a musical, the choreographer and the musical director. And if, if the director is sort of backing into the project because they feel that someone they didn't want is being shoved in down their throat, which happened to me last year, for example, and I won't say who the person was. It was actually a well-known director and a very well-known designer. But And I really had the best of intentions. Um, but in retrospect, even though I had the best of intentions, even though the person was incredibly talented, that director, and was gracious about it, too. He really was gracious about it. But he always felt that that person was slightly shoved down his throat. And it was never the happiest of relationships, both artistically or interpersonally. And I, in retrospect, it was the wrong decision. Um, so I try to find someone that makes us happy institutionally, but that the director feels passionately about being the collaborator. And I think if it's, and this is where other people may disagree, if it's a 50-50, on the edge, I tend to give it to the director um, because I feel like I've given them the production. To not give them the tools that they really believe they need is kind of pennywise a pound foolish at that point. So is it basically a creative decision or a financial decision when you push your influence? In well, it's, it's, it's a creative decision, but sometimes the creative decision is informed by the fact that this particular designer has never been able to work within a budget, and so this is not something that we want to have work at the theater. And uh, sometimes, trying to be diplomatic here, the directors see sides of people, and the producers see sides of people that are different. Um, and the director honestly thinks that this person has been collaborative and lovely to deal with because that person has been with the director. And with the other people involved, it has been a nightmare. Um, and uh, so sometimes you just have to, and you know, frankly, and I'll, and I'll stop talking now, but frankly, I also feel the responsibility, and I really believe this, that there's a lot of people working at my theater for very little money. I'm talking about the staff now. I'm not talking about the artists who are also working for very little money, but I'm talking about the staff. And I, they're doing it because they love theater. I mean, nobody would be in the not-for-profit theater if they didn't love theater. It's just a stupid career decision. And I feel a responsibility to them, whether it's the production manager or the general manager, whoever it is, to try to give them a decent experience. Because if the whole experience is a nightmare of fighting and feeling that they're, that this designer, let's say, is doing everything to undermine what they have to do in terms of controlling the budget, it, it, makes, it makes what should be a positive environment, which is supposed to be the reason you're doing this for so little money, a, a horrible experience. So I actually do feel an obligation that when, let's say, a set designer has been nothing but horrible to the staff, even if they're a genius, I feel an obligation to try to not have that set designer back, because it just doesn't seem fair to the institution. I'm going to go back to Marty just for a minute, then I'm going to ask our directors to talk about situations in which they may have taken a project to a producer, initiated themselves, or what interesting process you've been involved with through a producer and how it works successfully for you. But Marty, you were going to tell us about something that was terribly unspectacularly successful. Well, I don't know if anything's been a disaster. I mean, there are, there are shows where 
that I've done that have been unsuccessful, but the collaborators all went out loving each other and got together and did another show, and the next one was a good one. And there's been shows that were successful where they all loved hating each other and they would never work with each other again. So. But, you know, I'll be honest, I'm working on a piece now that's had a bumpy ride. Um, and I'll even tell you who the people are because I think the story's informative and I think they'd all be okay with it. But um, about a year and a half ago, um, I went to into a room and Richard Marley and David Shire played me uh, almost the full score for a new musical called Take Flight about uh, Amelia Earhart, Charles Lindbergh, and the Wright Brothers. Um, and I love Richard and David's work. Anyway, I mean, I just saw an incredible reading the other day, the Todd did a baby, which hopefully he's going to bring back, because we all need to see it again. But, uh, but um, they wrote one great song after another, and, and the music was really moving. No director, no book writer, and the show lacked a certain structure. Why were we sitting in the room, and why were these people all in the same show, and, and how was the show going to be pulled together? And so we spent the next few months uh, looking for a book writer, and finally discovered that uh, Marsha Norman's uh, father had been an aviator and really interested in aviation. And, uh, you know, I, I think Marsha's done a number of pieces over the years where she's sort of gone outside the world she's comfortable in. But here was a show that was really all about American Midwesterners and yokels, and that's kind of the world Marsha grew up in. So we thought this was the right relationship, and we started working together. And then. I figured, well, now I got three eggheads in a room, Walton Shire and Marsha, and what we need is a little show business, so we brought Jerry Mitchell in as director of the project. Um, and I've been looking for something for Jerry to direct, because I think uh, he's going to be the next terrific director. So anyway, we went off together, and we started working and started giving the show structure. We went up to the O'Neill last summer and, uh, and did a version of where we were at the O'Neill. But there was always this pull in two different directions. Marsha kept trying to structure the characters, especially the Amelia Earhart, George Putnam story, and, uh, and to give it a chronology and to give it a tight structure. And Richard and David always wanted this looser form and this form where anything could happen at any minute on the stage, and it didn't have that kind of tight structure. They were looking for some new form, and she was looking to be, stay more in the tradition of, of the successful musicals and musicals she's done in the past. And finally, it got to the point in the last few months where I realized they were never going to write the same show together. Uh, and that even if they did, Richard and David would never be happy with the show they wrote. Um, and so they're getting divorced. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, Marsha realizes that she doesn't want to stay in a situation where she doesn't want to write the show. They want to write. I don't know what the show is that Richard and David want to do now, and it's very frustrating because I thought we were going in the right direction, and frankly, we've spent a lot of money on the show. But my feeling now is that until they get out on paper what they have in their heads, we're never going to be able to get anyplace. So now we've sent them off for a few months to put that down and come back and show us all what 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 they think the show is. They want. What's well, interesting about the projects that you talk about, it had to be on paper first. You had the treatment where the director was hired in ragtime, and now you're saying this isn't working because it isn't on paper yet. You know, it's interesting, because I think Richard and David are two of the most talented people in the business and have never had a successful show. And I think it's because they get an idea for a show, and they sit down and start writing songs, and they don't have the treatment that Terrence McNally wrote for ragtime. And I think if they started with that, they'd be in better condition. 
our director, can anyone talk about uh, an artistic process with the producer or taking a project to a producer that the director <coughs> was the driving force on? Can any of you talk about situations in which you may have been the driving force for that? Chris? Okay. Uh, uh, you, uh, you can start, and I'll, and I'll, I'll support you and then compliment you. <laughs> What pops into mind, it's interesting, because you're always sort of looking for uh, ideas. You know, you're sort of trying to figure out what's the next thing you want to work on, and you never know where those ideas are going to come from. And I, I had worked for years, I mean, since my very first show in New York, with a sound designer and composer named John Gramada, who's just a genius designer. Um, and he's always been a little frustrated because I've, he's, he's only really written incidental music, and as interesting as that is and how important, that may be, it really does come down to like, well, John, you need to cut five seconds and you need to make it a happier cue. And it's not really like being a composer. And I sort of had that in the back of my mind. And uh, the artistic director of The Long Wharf called me last year and said, we want to do a comedy to close our season, this, close this season. And all of a sudden I thought, John Ramada, Shakespeare, Twelfth Night. And it just came into my head because I had been thinking, well, I want to I, I, I be able to say John, to John, write five songs set this, these Shakespeare songs to music. And so I just said, Twelfth Night, and I want John Gramada to write it. And Greg Lemming said, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And we did. And I, so it really, the whole thing, in a funny way, I built this entire production around a sound designer. It's not that interesting a story. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure Chris is and, um, and, and what kind of freedom did you have? I mean, did they, did he, were you given? all the tools and freedom that you needed? Yeah, I mean, that was a fun show because I had a, I, I also had a really kind of, I had a very specific idea I wanted to set it in Italy in 1960. Uh, you know, sort of, I was very inspired by two Italian films that had come out in 1960. And I, I sort of, as I was saying this to Greg Lemming, he said, great, do it, go. And, uh, you know, John and I just sat around for about a month, really, listening to uh, Italian film scores. And, just started composing, and it was, and I kind of, what was exciting about it was I got to see another whole side to him, and I had known him so well, and I had never sat and watched him really go through the creative process that a composer goes through. I had seen him kind of deliver, you know, bring, a, bring in a, a tiny piece of incidental music and then miraculously make it perfect, but I'd never seen him sort of really write a song, and I, I, you know, it was, it was exciting. Uh, I've been frustrated most of the times that I've initiated a project from the core idea, um, and I think that's because, um, okay, I approach a producer with ball of fire in one case, I think I would make a wonderful musical, uh, and if the idea starts with me, and like the, it's all in my head what it could be, then you bring the writers on board, and it only moves at the pace that I give it focus and attention. Uh, and I, a, a couple times I've done this, I've been sort of startled by when I shift off to another project and start taking another play, and I come back to the project, wait, why was there no forward progress on that, on that project? Well, because it's all in my head, and they can only work as fast as I'm with them and giving them time, whereas if you sort of sign on to a project that starts in Lunar and head, or, you know, some, some, one of the other participants has the kind of seed idea, you have the tremendous luxury of, they go off and they work seriously, <coughs> and it, you know, it keeps getting better, and you get to edit. And there, it's, for me, it's a very different process, primarily creating the thing on the page, and incredibly more time-consuming 
uh, than getting the luxury of editing someone else's sort of primary idea. And there's real satisfaction in being the primary person with the story idea. Uh, but it really means you have to clear out time to be a writer on it, which is a very different process I found than being a director. Um, I about the question of like who uh, who, who decides on the creative team and, and the loyalty versus taking a fresh look at a new person. My approach to that is uh, trying to, to achieve kind of 50-50ness. Uh, that there's so many creative business on a musical that unless there's some kind of comfort zone for me of people I have a shorthand with, people I have worked with before, it might find it too disorienting. And if everybody's new, I, I, there's just, it's too hard to develop a new relationship with, with the producer and all three writers and the choreographer. Because there's, there's like that writer. learning curve with everybody. You yeah, just can't be going curve. through that learning curve with everybody. And if you totally work with the team, you, you've, done, you've worked with every single one of them before and they've all worked with each other, that there's a lack of fresh blood in there. There's like, oh, well, are we going to just do that same production we did at that other play, but the material is completely different? So there, there's a real joy in bringing new people into the process, too. And for me, it's a question of literally listening to the producer and the writers and the choreographer or whoever's already on the team about their suggestions for new people I haven't worked with before and trying to hone in on if, we're gonna, if there's going to be a new relationship for me, who's going to have based on what I know of their work, a real tuning fork for this story, and who's going to bring something, who has real affinity for the style or the kind of story it is, or I've seen something in their work that hasn't been in my work before, but that I think we're going to create an interesting triangle with me, their stuff, and this story, and this style. Larry, uh, as a director choreographer, have you been involved with projects where when you came in as a choreographer, you in some way drove the project? Because we've heard of certainly of those projects in which suddenly the movement of the piece, the, the spirit of it, comes from the choreographer. I think that's happened with how in, in a number of things. Follies? Well, um, certainly something like Cats, which was all choreography. Um, but also, um, I always feel that the director has to be the captain of the ship, and they have to be the one whose concept you are all trying to fulfill, so that you're all doing the same show. Um, and hopefully that the director can make it quite clear uh, what the concept is, as far as what it should look like, how it should move, whether it should be as realistic as possible, as, or as metaphoric and poetic as possible, um, and then uh, you go to work and maybe if, uh, you know, you talk through every single thing that uh, is on the page or possibly isn't, um, because of course until it's staged, it can't still be on the page, um, to be sure that you are trying, that you are really duplicating what the director sees or wants are conceits of wanting to see. Um, sometimes they're not sure totally about, they may have an overall concept, but uh, not a specific one for every single part of the show. And you can until you really actually start getting it up on its feet. Um, and hopefully they can be as clear 
to their to their collaborators as possible. But I still think that the driving force should always be the director. And even if the producer, even if the choreographer, excuse me, um, has visually, so to speak, a larger percentage of work to do, it still has to be the director's concept. And, you know, you, you have to try to give him what he wants. And sometimes that's extremely frustrating because you feel maybe you have. But they will say, no, 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 I don't quite get it. Uh, that's not clearly saying what we had talked about. And so you go back and you work on it some more. And hopefully, you know, one rehearsal session, they'll come in, they'll take a look, and they say, oh, now I, that's it, I got it. So, uh, and hopefully, your own ego doesn't get in your way. Uh, and that uh, if the choreographer becomes the driving force, then it's the cart before the horse, I think, really, conceptually. Sally, what is your role in all of this collabor collaboration? You're the manager, the Dodgers, you're in terribly important to this whole process. Do you, how do you plug in within your own organization to the collaboration and creation and fulfillment of the Dodgers? Well, when we're involved in developing brand new work, we frequently will support a process of work sessions amongst collaborators who don't live near each other, uh, readings so that we can see what progress is being made. Hopefully, you might go so far as a workshop or a tryout of something regionally that's still in process. And of course, that's basically just producing tiny versions of the show and intermediate versions of the show and bigger versions of the show, or that ever so delicate thing about enhancing someone's regional production. Uh, it can be when you go into full production, for, for Broadway for instance, that that perfect creative team that's in the director's mind is not, they're not all available. Does the Dodgers system or, or way of working uh, echo what you've heard around the panel so far in terms of creating a collaborative group? Yeah, there, there can be really specific instances when uh, we may be new to players, but we know very well their sort of identity with the product, and we are occasionally more insistent on them taking on certain styles of collaborators, right down to maybe who, which stage manager they work with. Because we have an investment to protect. Uh, it's the producer's responsibility, after all, to exercise his best judgment about how to do that. So it's, so it's very delicate. And frankly, on my worst days, I think our process as artists is to go, yeah, sure. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> we'll find the money somewhere. But, but that's, that's on a bad day. Um, I try to be intensely supportive because they know how to do what we can't, and they make the magic. We, of course, Michael David and Ed Strong have visions too. They have a vision of why you'd want to revive into the woods at this moment in time. They have a vision of 
Music Man being ready to be seen in New York for the first time since it opened originally. And um, they just want to be around guys like The Who when they want to do comedy. But, but what's wrong with that? I mean, they made me want to be around them too when I saw the show. Um, yeah, we don't, I mean, generally, we support the director's instincts. Then we try to collaborate when it comes to those gaps in the staff. We've done this an awful lot, occasionally a lot more often than various of the members of the creative team. Uh, if we go ahead and take chances on new people, we try to be terribly supportive to them, uh, lend what we know about how other successful people work and what's going to be expected of them. But generally, I think we feel that our purpose beyond initiating the project and creating the, or gathering the combustible materials that will make it exciting is to stand back and permit it to happen. So you just said initiate the project. Does that mean the idea grows full blown in some cases from, you, from the head of Zeus? Or is it because someone has brought an idea to you, brought a script to you, uh, All of those things can happen. But does it ever happen when you initiate yes. the idea from scratch? Yes. So occasionally, uh, well, in the case of a revival, very often it's going to be a project that Michael has strong feelings about. So he's had to pursue the right, he's got the rights in place before he has any idea who's going to direct it or work with it. It might be just material like the music from the lesser film Hans Christian Andersen as a starting point, uh, at which point you get the rights to, to adapt them first and sort of Joe's blessing, and then you look for a collaborative team to build from that. And then there are those people who have slaved over something like Titanic and bring it to you. You either fall in love with something like that or you don't. But you better fall in love with it because it's a, it's a long-term commitment. Elizabeth, can you think of any models that we haven't covered here? We've talked about producers initiating, we've talked about writers bringing to producers, um, we've talked about directors bringing projects. Is there another way in which this collaboration gets started? And, and or, is there a better way of putting the team together? I think that, you know, as, as everyone has pointed out, every variable possible. Um, I've had composers come to me with projects, directors. So composers, without a book, without a story, without a treatment. Lucy Simon um, brought Dr. Zhivago to me many years ago, and we've been trying to put that project together. Um, in fact, Marty Bell helped with, with that project at one point. We have a team together at last. Um, one, um, it, Occasionally, the producer will have the idea and put the entire creative team together, as Marty was discussing. Let me break in. You say you at last. What What was the difficulty well, that was a long of putting process. the team together? Yeah. It was a long process. So, as Marty said, you, you know um, at a certain point when things aren't working in a collaboration. <coughs> and um, we went through several stages with, with Dr. Zhivago. Um, in which it became clear that the collaboration wasn't working. How do you keep a project alive when you see it's not working? Because that can just deaden a lot of the it, principles. It can, but if you if if there um, 
if a passion remains to do this project among the, the producers and some of the creative team members. Um, you know, obviously you just, just receive. Do you just or do you bring in new pieces? It varies. It varies, as Marty was pointing out. You know, the, the collaborators decided that there was a different point of view, and they moved on um, in separate directions. It, but it's, it can be very complicated, obviously, if you... And, but there has to be that engine. There has to be the one creative member who really has the, the driving vision for the piece. And if there's, there's not that, that individual, you're in, you're in big trouble. Um, I have, there's one, we're working on a project now, a revised version of On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. And um, Liza Lerner, Alan J. Lerner's daughter, had brought it to us. And we went to, I can't tell you how many directors who just did not, because we thought of this as something that, because, because the model for, for me for redoing a musical, um, an old musical with a new book, was to find the director first. That, that to me made the most sense. So we went to many directors, none of whom connected with this piece from the viewpoint of the, the way that we thought it might be revised. And finally... Who supplied um, that idea for how it might be revised? Was it, again, the composer? No. Um, Eliza and I had a notion of what we thought needed to be done, but we didn't have a true concept, un unlike with Crazy for You, where I, where I really had the idea of, of, of changing it into a, a true farce. Um, but we, we, we finally, one day, were talking to Heidi Ettinger, with whom I'd um, produced um, The Secret Garden, and Heidi said, well, you know, I was sitting in the theater with Michael Mayer, and Michael Mayer said to me that his true love in all musical theater was on a clear day you can see forever, and he had a totally new concept of how to redo that book. And I said, Heidi, you've just solved the problem we've been struggling with. For so we got Michael on the phone, and um, he's He's um, worked with Paul Selig to come up with a new book. That one, too, we began with a different writer initially, and she backed out after some time. And now we have Paul Selig, and we have a book, and we're probably going to do it at the New York Theatre Workshop next year. What kind of legal problems do you get into if someone has fashioned a book and suddenly you're not going to use that book? It's, in its essence, their property, or is it not their property? Of course it's their property. And obviously, if you use any elements of that initial um, book, you must do some sort of negotiation with that, that, um, that artist. Robert, uh, any of these models have, uh, connect with your institution and your work in terms of how, how it functions? Yeah, all of them, really. I mean, we've, we've been producing for so long that you see everything. We had um, a new musical workshop for many years when, during flusher times before the state of New Jersey uh, cut the arts budget by 50%. And um, most of the people that Marty's worked with, many of the people that are you know, winning Tony Awards now came through this project. The key is it's, it's putting the right group together. That's all there is to it. You've got to put them together right from the beginning because most of the projects that went through that that didn't go on to a, a, a life, one person wasn't right. It might have been the lyricist, it might have been the book writer, it might have been the director. And they didn't connect. I mean, I have seen things you wouldn't believe. I have seen a composer and lyricist beating each other up on the floor and the composer yelling at him saying, you're making my music sound awful because the lyrics are so terrible and you know, you just put them apart and you just roll it. And this, 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 you know, I, it can get very passionate and very violent, you know, and you just don't know what to do at that point. Um, so I think coming back to this concept of, of at least forming a group where some of the people have worked together 
and have already know a process of working that is that is a positive process. You have to have a group of writers and director choreographers that can have a goal, a way of working from this month to the next month to the next month, so that you're constantly making progress. Because so many projects just spin their wheels because something has not clicked in that can get it to move forward. And if a producer or someone can get the inspiration to get them going to that next level, that's what has to happen, or, or it just sits there. And, and every project is different to find that, that key to keep it going and building and building and building to the point where it's ready to actually be produced. Dan, your, your uh, collaboration is a little different from the rest of the people on the panel, and most recently with Mary Zimmerman. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that collaboration and, uh, and, and um, how it came about? Um, a, a choreographer is, um, doesn't uh, initiate projects clearly in the theater uh, or the opera. Um, my collaboration with Mary Zimmerman was in the opera world with a Philip Glass opera called Akhenaten that we did in Boston and Chicago. And um, we were put together uh, uh, by the uh, producer in Boston and hit it off really well. And, uh, and uh, developed a concept. Mary is a visualist, and a complete visualist. And uh, Mary comes into a process having done uh, very little or no pre-production, except for having the set design. And, um, and then you, you get in rehearsal and go. Let's make it up. Um, uh, she has the set design. She has the set design, and the costume. Because of her visual background, that's where she attacks the project first. Absolutely, you know. Um, but but almost every project that you know that I get involved in, um, whether it's with Chris or whether it's with Stephen Wadsworth or whether it's with um, Sharon, Ott, I, I work a lot recently. Um, you know, you always come into a, a a process with with the production design. Um, I, you know, I took a, a basically five-year hiatus from the theater and, and became a resident choreographer at Boston Ballet so that I could initiate my own projects and uh, collaborate with designers. And when I did that, I brought in theater designers. Uh, the first project I did, I brought in Brian McDevitt, Steel Life, and Michael Anthony at two sets. And second ballet, I brought in Santo and Jim Ingle. And then I uh, brought in Marty Pacladinas and, and Robert Brill. And, um, and, and so, you know, as a choreographer, the theater is not the place where you put together collaborative teams, but um, I, had to go some, I had to go somewhere else to do that. Um, uh, my job as a choreographer in theater or the opera is to support the director's vision. And um, if somebody would ask me, what, what do you do best, then I would say I collaborate. And is that collaboration, you mentioned that when you worked with Mary, the producer brought you in. Is that usually how it happens? Uh, often, or um, Chris and I got hooked up uh, via our agents. And uh, if- Aha, agents, we've not heard about their effect on this. Go ahead. Well, I, mean, I have a swell agent, uh, you know, but for years I had a not swell agent. And I, you know, 
I sort of wallowed in, you know, theatrical purgatory. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the director takes, you know, you have a five-minute meeting, you can get a sense of whether the choreographer is bright or adult or, you know, uh, is on the same wavelength or not. Um, you know, and uh, Chris and I uh, hit it off, Mary and I hit it off. Uh, I don't hit it off with every director that I work with. Um, you still work with them? I prefer not to. <laughs> well, have you worked with people you didn't hit it off with, and was it a successful collaboration nonetheless? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I want to say a thing about the meeting. Yes. We had a really fun first meeting. Uh, and for me, it like I have a sort of acid test for myself of walking out of a meeting. Everybody that I like and is smart has good ideas that they'll throw in the meeting. And for me, the question is, does that person make me have new ideas that I like? Mm -hmm. Like, does it, are they sparking something? And it, that suggests to me that in a rehearsal, they're going to create my best work as well as me loving their work. And I have to say, our first meeting, I had like, walked out of there with seven new ideas that I had had. And I was like, therefore, he clicked with me in some way that I'm going to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing of putting a team together is what you really want is to be surprised. I think when you're just starting out as a director, you think what it's going to be is people are going to realize your vision. But you certainly don't want to tell the actors how to act, and you don't want to tell the choreographer how to choreograph. What you want is to be the person who has the kind of driving central idea. And then you learn how to be multilingual so that you can translate that into the language that a designer speaks, a choreographer speaks, and an actor speaks. And then let everyone go off and do that mysterious creative leap and come back and Surprise. How do you become multilingual? Oh, you go to Berlitz, I guess. <laughs> you, uh, you, if you work with enough people, you know, you, you, the more you collaborate with designers, the more you begin to understand what they understand and what kind of ideas. You know, I had a great experience. I, was, I was, had a meeting with Susan Kelfry, brilliant costume designer, and she had just met with a young director well, I think he's very talented, and I said, oh, how'd that go? He's great, right? And she said, oh, he just pissed me off. He kept talking about clothes, and I wanted to talk about the play. And I thought, so interesting and so eye-opening. Of course, if you, if you talk, she, she wants to know what is, what is the central idea on which all her ideas are going to kind of be attached. She wants to start talking about the ideas, because that's really part before bull. So you begin to learn how designers think and talk. You learn how choreographers think and talk. They sort of teach you stuff, and, and I think you just get better and better. You sort of do become multilingual. Michael, uh, part of, of our, our mission here is to talk about how we collaborate in many areas. And, and one of the things I think was said in here, if I read it correctly, is how you manage the budget, how the director manages the budget. How, I mean, does the director manage the budget? We've talked about coming in on budget just how important is it for your creative team to have an intimate knowledge of that budget? You're asking me as producer, yes. how, does the, how does the director... Yeah, I mean, what well, do you expect? Well, I mean, I guess you, you even hinted to it earlier, you know, the big lie, how much money do we really have, and, you know, are we on budget, are we under budget? Um, in my limited experience, I have found 
that more honest being with everyone saves up a lot of headache and bullshit, and you just get to the point clearer. Uh, so I try to impart to the director uh, really what the number is. And I say, and here is our contingency for wiggle room, but then we have to make a decision uh, of where this, you know, if we have an extra $25,000 and we have to, and that we're keeping for the just-in-case moment for the brilliant ideas that come up, is that going to be a brilliant costume decision or a brilliant scenic decision or is it a brilliant advertising decision? I mean, it's, and I try to keep uh, the, the, the primary players in the loop so that we're all, uh, I think, more informed everyone is, the better everyone's going to do their job. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm working on a show right now, uh, Debbie Does Dallas. Uh, saw it down at the Fringe Festival last summer, and I thought, this is a great idea. It's not a great production yet, but it's a great idea for a show. So uh, my partners, we said, Let's, who would be a great collaborative uh, person to bring in to help bring the show? We found a young woman who's directing it, and I was very honest with her. Listen, we can't spend a lot of money on this until it gets better. And we don't have a lot of money to pay you to make it better. But let's come up with, uh, with a plan if we're going to do a reading and we're going to rehearse for a week in October. And then we're going to go back and we're going to work on it again. We're going to do another reading in January. We're going to get two weeks to rehearse that. And then we're building up towards a workshop and you're going to get a full week workshop. Here's the, here's the resources that I can scrounge up to make this happen. And let's make really smart decisions about what, where this money's going to go. So let's not build a set, because the set isn't going to help us tell our story right now at this point. Let's hire a choreographer who will help you. Or let's get a better set designer as opposed to a better set. Get but someone who can come in and ask you questions and challenge you to help create something. You know, we're all trying to hedge our bets as long as we possibly can. Spend the least amount of money as long as we possibly can. So we say, okay, now we can do the show. I am honest. One of the questions uh, in, in our, our panel here is how we adapt to changes in the script and score, which sort of suggests to me new work, but it may not necessarily be true. If you're, if you're doing revivals and you're, re and you're changing the concept uh, from how it was originally produced, I suppose this really refers to what happens in midstream if you change your mind rather than at the very beginning because the planning is all there at the very beginning. Marty, for instance, have you run into situations where halfway through the process or a quarter of the way, suddenly everybody said, oh my God, no, it should be in blue. <laughs> well, I mean, change is a constant in our business. I think, you know, we're all going through that. I mean, every show is continually being rewritten. Um, I never feel like shows are finished. I always feel like they open. <clears throat> and that's why, you know, years later when we go back and do a revival or a new production, we're still rethinking it because they're not finished. It shows are like living organisms that keep changing. And, you know, that's why Todd's cabaret is so interesting and Hal's cabaret was so interesting. Same show, but different show. Uh, so I think change is something that, uh, uh, if people are not good at dealing with change, they're in the wrong, they shouldn't be doing musical. Okay, I think that's like a good answer. I think, that's I think a good change thing. is a way of life. Yeah. 
one of the things that we well, have to you know, in musicals, there are so many variables to change. I mean, it's like you've got choreography, dance charts, orchestration, scenery, costume lights, which all straight plays have. So there's so many kind of creative decisions constantly being made that inevitably there are going to be more decisions that need to be revised. You just have to say, well, what's not working? Well, we, we, need another, we need more instruments. We, this show doesn't work with eight people in the pit. Or this, there's way too much dance, or there's not enough dance, or the dance arrangements don't work, or the, the composer will suddenly decide, I hate the dance arrangements. And suddenly, and you can't at that point say, well, this is what we said we were going to do. Right. You just have to figure out how, do you, how can we afford to solve it. But it, it does come down to money. Yeah. The producer would prefer as few changes as possible. Yeah, or what's well, the producer's job to say? I got this much money to move around. If it isn't working, right. it's not in the producer's interest not to make the changes. I, I don't want to steer this at all, except there's just something I'm on fire to say on the subject of managing budgets and what directors have to do with it. Because I'm intensely intelligent based totally on hindsight. But in, there's something that occasionally occurs between producers and directors at sort of a goodwill meeting. And it's a, it's a very deliberate laying out of the business plan layered over the project itself. And the question is, can you, do you think you can live within this? This is what we're envisioning, spending this much, operating at this level, because, because the other wild card being where you're going to play when it comes to Broadway. It's been all about getting a theater for the last four or five seasons. And you can't, you have got, it's a, it's behooves the management and the producer to get so smart about communicating what the numbers actually mean, because you cannot criticize the individual who says, you need that much for wig replacement? Sure, I can live with this. <laughs> I mean, seven figures is a lot of money. But they don't, it's not their vocabulary. It's not the language they speak. And if you can't get good at saying, understand that what you can get usually for $700,000 on a stage is equivalent to we got for that amount of money, and that's what we're thinking we have to live with, because we can only book the booth, you know, whatever. All of those, you've got to learn to be good at expressing that. But beyond that, why in the world would you embark on the journey of producing a show? Because really, getting there is maybe all the fun. Very rarely do you get the awards and the recognition and the BAFO ticket sales that make it all worthwhile. But the collaboration is the great, luxurious pleasure of it all. And I mean that's true for me, the people I get to work with and around, the fact that people solicit my opinion, even if it's only out of politeness. It is a thrill <laughs> to be in the circle. And why would you embark if you weren't going to permit for the great idea that comes up on the third preview when you discover how your audience is reacting to what the former great idea and it produced. It's just, you've, got to, you've got to design flexibility into that business plan. I have one last question to the panel, and then we're going to turn it over to the audience. Uh, we don't live in the world of stars today, as we sort of did when I first arrived in New York. But have you had a project that was initiated by a star, by a name, by someone you thought could carry the project? Does that happen today? I mean, I'm doing it. We're doing Frankie and Johnny's third women because my partner is really, we think he also is brilliant. He's a wonderful actress. 
Uh, we wanted to do a play that Edie Falco could be in. That was the goal. Uh, we had known her for a long time before she was Edie Falco, and she had come to us and said, I'd love to. When she was exactly. <laughs> sat and scratched our head and said, what play would she be good at? We came up with a list of plays and we went to her and said, here are some plays. Do you like any of them? She said, well, I was just talking to Stanley Tucci last night. I think Frankie and Johnny would be good. And we said, ah, that would be good. And we said, how about Joe Mantello? Do you like him? And she said, oh, I love Joe. And it happened like that. Within a 36-hour period, everyone had said, yes, we're going to do it. Now, it has never happened like that, ever. <laughs> In anything we've ever done, it usually takes two or three years of agony and pain and blood, and you know, <laughs> it just—it's the worst. But that's the value of having a star. Uh, you know, I, we're hoping she's a star. You know, we'll hope is she willing to make the commitment? Oh yeah, she's yeah. run long enough to pay your. Yeah, uh, I mean, and that's—you know—we structured a, a, a situation, hopefully, where everyone is working for a certain amount of money, so that. We can do it and run at a certain level and make the money back and make a little profit and uh, you know, maybe do it again. I think we're much more in the world of stars than, than the business has been for, for decades, actually. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's a result of the, the writer's strike that never happened or, or, uh, or what happened, but this season we certainly have more stars than ever before in the theater. Um, Is that a good you know, thing for collaboration? Well, I think anything that creates excitement in town that makes people want to go to the theater is a good thing for the theater. I don't care what it is. I mean, the one, pardon me? Yeah, and a, and a lot of them will probably start here. It's probably because people were able to get. Um, one thing we don't seem to be able to do as well as, uh, as the business certainly did in the 50s and 60s is create our own stuff. And part of the reason for that is, you know, they wrote shows for Ethel Berman, and they wrote shows for Mary Martin, they wrote shows for John Ray and for Alfred Drake. And somehow we don't do that. And Audrey McDonald or Donna Murphy or somebody comes along, or Brian or Stokes, and, uh, and, and they have a big, make a big splash, and we don't go off and create shows for these people. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous. And we need to do it. It's a different world, though, now, Marty, isn't it, that when, of course it is, than when Apple Merman and, and Mary Martin were stars, being a Broadway star nationally meant more than, than it does today, where you have, if you don't have a television persona or something, that most of the people in the States don't know who you are. What, couldn't hear me? No. No, I take that Could you repeat a little bit of that, Larry? No, I just said, it. It's a different world, I think, Marty, today. Obviously, it is from when Ethel Merman and Mary Martin were uh, having shows written for them. They were national American treasures. They were stars in the entire country, even though they weren't film stars. And um, they weren't, I mean, they, they did guest spots on musical variety shows on television, so people around the country got to know what they looked like as opposed to what they just sounded like. But um, today, isn't it more true that you have to have uh, a kind of TV cue or something bigger than just being a great, being starred in a Broadway show and getting great reviews because most of the public doesn't know who they are? 
Look, there's no question that everybody wants to do movies, everybody wants to do television, and that's where the money is. And, but there's a lot of people we all know who are very committed to theater and will always come back if we have things for them to do. I mean, Audra's going on to do a television series now, and uh, uh, and it sounds like an exciting, opportunity, exciting role for her, but she'll come right back and do a show if somebody's got a show for her to do. Lithgo, you know, six years on television, and all, we, we, got, we got him because he wanted to do a show. His series was ending, and all he wanted to do was come to New York and be on the stage again. And there were a lot of people like that who were committed to it. it doesn't mean we're going to have them here 52 weeks a year every year, but they'll come back if we create vehicles for them. Okay, let's turn it over to the audience now for questions you have for the panel. Yes, simply a sophomore between the American sensibility and the British sensibility today's new musical theater. Well, I think just in this particular case, it was a, uh, it was a, the cabaret that he did at the Dunmar was an extreme version of Sam's concept, which really, like, nobody could sing and nobody could dance, and it was, um, it was really down and dirty, and I think that particular production, I think there's a certain expectation of a basic level of what a Broadway musical should be, and that production translated to Broadway, I think, would not have been successful. And I think Rob brought to Sam, keeping in mind that you know, Sam comes from England and he never, had never done a Broadway musical, I think Rob brought to Sam, brought up the level of the entire musical production numbers and the musical production, the quality of the singers and the quality of the dancers to a level where the basic sort of conceit of this, you know, Sally Bowles who doesn't sing that well and all the stuff that, that this cabaret represented, the basic conceit was still there, but not at a level where the audience would wince, um, you know. And so you really did see a difference. Another question? We've answered all your questions, yes, ma'am. Uh, Dave, you started to talk a little bit about the dialogue between um, the conceptual thinking of the players in the scene. What uh, kind of preparation do you feel a director needs to do
So preparation is kind of everything. Otherwise, you do what I call, what do you think directing? And I think that's a combat. You know, what do you think? Well, what do you think? Because eventually, good designers, they know they can smell that kind of director. <laughs> and they will just do what they want. And then you get chaos. Same thing with the choreographers. I mean, the choreographer, what a good choreographer wants from the director is to be told, what is the story you want to tell? Because I can, I've got, you know, X, and, X bars of dance music here, and I can make something up, or I can come up with something with the dancers, but if you tell me the story you want to tell, then within those rules, I have real things. Yes, ma'am. Um, I think you said that uh, the first panel of the day seemed to clearly um, emphasize or reveal the director's um, responsibility or initiative on the collaborative process, whether uh, a lyricist and a composer brought material to the director. Um, I'm not sure that the producer was that much involved with the panel. And what I'm not I'm not hearing now, although I'm hearing that obviously the director is part of the collaborative process, and obviously from the directors, um, you know, that their vision is extremely important. But I am not getting from the producers how important uh, or significant the directorial vision really is in formulating these collaborative projects. And forgive me, but I'm just not. Bryna has said that she had not heard necessarily uh, how important from the producers the director's vision is to the project in this collaboration, since we've talked a lot about producers initiating projects. Do any of our producers want to respond to that? Well, you know, I think it varies. I mean, I think we're not negating anything that you heard this morning. Uh, and and uh, uh, certainly... Uh, a lot of the projects all of it's done is strongly driven by a director with a strong vision. But I think what you're hearing here is that there are other variations and occasionally uh, other forms. Occasionally somebody else in the collaboration has the vision and, and uh, the director is, is helping put that vision on the stage. Um, occasionally projects are originated by other people within the group. Uh, and, and I just think there are a lot of different options. I mean, I don't think there's any, I think the one thing we all have to learn over and over is there's no formula in this business. Yeah, maybe the, what, what Marty's saying, I think, is that perhaps the confusion comes from once the project has come together and you have all your collaborators, then, then the director is, the cap, as everyone keeps saying, the captain of that ship, and it is that, that individual's um, the cohesiveness that that individual forms in that creative team that pushes it forward. Earlier on, there the idea for, for it could come from any number of, of sources, and in the creation, especially of a musical, which can take years and years and years, there fr frequently is someone who's the real torchbearer, the, the, the engine that keeps that, pro that process moving forward. In fact, Chris was talking about that, the, the luxury of having somebody else pushing that forward while you go ahead and do your work outside, and then you come back and take, take the reins. And I think that, that's the crucial thing. It's, 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 there's two stages. There's how do you get the thing on the page for the first time in some form, and then how do you actually take the thing on the page and keep on working on that, 
getting the choreographer involved, getting the designers involved, and turning that into a production. And I, I almost don't know of a successful production where the director hasn't wanted it to be a certain way once it's actually gearing up, but how you actually get the thing on the page from a blank page to a page full of musical dialogue, that can be, a, the, the, the hot seat can be anywhere on the circle. And also instigating is not the same as executing. You know, I, I once said, three years ago I said to Richard Greenberg, you should write a play for Peter Frechette and Red Rogers. And he went away and he had an idea and he wrote a play called The Dazzle and we did it, which I did for Todd, did season at the roundabout. But I, he wrote the whole play by himself and delivered it as fully realized to my door. <laughs> I instigated it because I had this idea, but you know, it's sort of the opposite of what Chris was talking about. It was like it happened without my knowing. Uh, then he gave it to me and said, now you're the director, you are the captain. Go, do it. It seems that some of the projects this morning needed the director in that production period to focus and structure the material. And so that's a different aspect. It does. You always need a goal for where you're going to end up, right? I mean, and that's where the producer comes in. You know, as Sally was saying, you know, managing the all of the energy, you know, the design budget, the advertising budget, all of that. You need to have someone who is focused on, while he's going to captain the ship, I guess we have to, I don't know, what, general the ship? I don't know. I mean, like, someone has to get docket, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, we have to find, you know, so we get a theater, and then we, so, okay, we're going into the Henry Miller with Urinetown. Well, how is that going to happen? You know, there's not an unlimited amount of money with which to get his vision or John Randall's vision into that theater. So we have to shape that constantly funneling that, uh, I guess it's dual vision. Yeah, I mean, and without being infantilized, because the last thing I want is to be treated like I can't think about money. Or I, I also don't have the time to think about all the things that Mike is talking about. I don't. How could I? So you sort of want to, you want producers who are kind of going to captain that other ship, which is the production, as opposed to kind of creating the, the, uh, the performance. Michael, is I think it's a, a, a much more enjoyable and smoother ride if you have a director from the beginning of the conception of writing process who has a clear vision, but it doesn't always happen. Sometimes the directors you want aren't interested in the project in the early stages, and you have to put it, you have to move it further along in order to entice them and get them involved. Marty, is it fair to say that the, the producer at some point, and the producer decides what that point is, delegates that responsibility? For that thrust to the director, and it may be early in the process, it may well, be it's, later. It's not only that, I mean, I think something we missed in, in the earlier panel just before this is that, you know, once once a director's on the project, he obviously is running the show, uh, and all communication has to be through the director. I mean, when we talked about sitting in the room with, with the creative team and being involved in the creative process, uh, as much as I've never sat in the room, it's always a personal conversation between the director and me afterwards in the room. You know, your producers don't talk to the cast until give them any ideas about anything that's happening. And it really doesn't talk to the choreographer or the designers unless the director ever asks them. So really it's a relationship between you and the director and then uh, basically you go off and handle the business aspects of the show and the director goes off and handles the creative and you sort of meet in the middle and talk about both of them. <coughs> 
I just had an experience of actually something a little too late in the process. I, I retired the day before rehearsal started. <laughs> there's, there's definitely a point at which it's really hard to come into a process. Uh, and it was all the designers I, I had worked with before. And I, uh, why was I hired for the last night? Yeah, why, uh, why would some, such a thing happen? You know, the other director uh, okay. got a job, they wanted to do more. Uh, but and I, and I thought going into it, great. I, I had worked with almost every creative participant on that show ahead of time. I thought I know how to work with them all, and I like got into rehearsal, and every set decision I would never have made with a designer I worked with many times before and loved. Every costume decision they were all built, I would never have made it. It was, it was so striking to me that there is. It's not just who the people around the director are. Once the director has articulated, this is how I see the show, people's work will respond to that idea and trying to go backwards to re-articulate it as your own idea. I mean, there's exactly no thing. I mean, if, this is what, if, you, if, if you do what do you think directing, in the end, that's what you'll get. You'll get a bunch of kind of other people big, honking horns in an intersection. <laughs> <laughs> Did I see a question over here? Yes. Um, I'm sure this has happened You get to a point in, in rehearsals where the collaboration is fairly not working. Um, how do you approach solving that problem? You sit down and, and you give them a not five years old speech or you fire somebody. <laughs> I mean, it's all obviously firing happens. The choreographer always gets fired first. <laughs> 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 Easiest thing is to hire a hitman. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, as in as in any business, we do have to view this as business occasionally. It's very hard to fire people, but uh, anybody who runs a business, it's part of your responsibility. You have to go through it. I don't think I don't think I don't think there's any again way or formula to do it. You know, you deal with people based on who they are and what you know about them. Has anyone here fired someone and then later able to reestablish an artistic collaboration with them on another project? Or does it just ruin it forever? <laughs> 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 Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, Readings and I think they're huge. I think they're uh, the most important 
thing you can do in the development process. Um, I think you know Urantown's case point is a perfect example of a you know a painstaking process that we took. You know from the very first reading uh, where you know we were lucky enough to get the Dodgers to actually come see it. I mean that was the big you know how can we get Michael David to come see the show? Because if he sees it, we're sure he'll like it, and then we'll be able to you know produce it at at a, at a bigger level. But uh, so that was it was critical. You know Rando. And I spent, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks casting that reading. I mean, because we knew that it was from the spark, the buzz, the heat, all that bullshit that you, that is a necessary aspect to whether your project is viral or not. Because you can tell. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you can see this group of people sitting up there reading or singing or somehow realizing the, uh, the piece. And it feel it in the room and it's you also you see what works you see what doesn't work and that first reading I think was critical because when uh, Michael David came on he came on with a fresh point of view and said the show is really great this number doesn't work and you need a different number in act two and we're like what we, we had never thought of that but he was right and it was from that that we came up uh, that the guys went off and begrudgingly and sort of angrily wrote snuff that girl which me, I think is like the best moment in the whole show. And it sort of said, okay, I guess we need a choreographer for this moment, which made us think, well, we need a weird choreographer. And Karapa came in. So, I mean, it was like all this, it was sort of the avalanche that, uh, the workshop process was the avalanche that I think helped get us where we are now. Is the workshop process also a place where you test collaboration or just the work itself? Well, I guess you test and collaboration at every minute. But I, I, I think that, you know, unlike novels, shows are written to be acted, not to be read. And I think you have to, I call it writing on your feet, which means that as soon as a writer writes something, you want him to see it and act to do it as quickly as possible. Uh, so, you know, when Mike talked before about the deadlines I gave everybody on Debbie, Love, uh, Debbie Does Dallas, I mean, I think that's an essential part of it. I think. Uh, you know, sometimes you think that somebody wins a Tony, they should be getting a Lifetime Achievement Award because it took a lifetime to write this one show. <laughs> but the truth is that, um, you know, shows could be written, shows don't have to be lifetime projects. Uh, and I think the way to do it is to, you hire a creative team, you give them three months to write a first act, and you hire actors. And on, after the three months, there's going to be 12 actors in the room, and if you're going to walk in there with no pages, you're going to be embarrassed. Get it done. And then they read that first act, and you tell them to Three more in 90 days, there's going to be 12 more actors in the room. Finish it. And then you go through that reading and you've heard the whole thing. And okay, you've got 90 more days and there's going to be another cast in the room. And you've got to be here with the script. Um, and, uh, and if you do that, you can get a show done in a year. Or in a year and a half instead of these three and five and seven year musicals that all of us seem to be working on now. I mean, Ragtime, I started writing in March of... 95 and it opened in Toronto in December of 96. And in that time, we did three readings and a workshop. That just means everybody's available to the process. So, I mean, yeah. for a reasonable amount of time. I think if you hire actors and you give them dates, they'll be available. It's when it's this, it's when it's this, this endless schedule and you don't know when it's going to be done that they don't become available because everybody's scared and everybody wants to cover themselves by working on four and five things at once. 
I feel like there's a really uh, crucial conversation between the director and the producer before a workshop or a reading, which is, is it work time to make the thing better, or is it showcase to raise the money and make the theater or the investors want to do it? And they're really different animals, and often they get merged in really uncomfortable ways. And if you're, if, if it's about sell, then you do the slickest, clearest, like most famous cast you can possibly get a hold of. And if it's about work, then you can If it's about the presentation, that's one thing. And if it's about making the script better, you try to discourage, you know, like low profile, keep people away, and being clear about which it is matters. And I and I feel like a lot of people aren't clear. I think that even goes through that, 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 that follows through to the first production. I think really good producers know how to say in the beginning, this is what we're looking for in this production, and then, and, and really mean it. In other words, we're not, we don't want a lot of big toys because we want to see how the script is going to work. And then not come back to the director later and say, you know, it doesn't really feel like Broadway yet. Because uh, I've been in that situation too. I've also been in the office and where the producers were like, do not, let, let's not waste the money now because that's what you were saying, Mike. And I think when producers know how to do that, you really get to, you get to work on it. If, if really at a certain point everyone's just going to get scared if it doesn't look like a big Broadway show yet, you have sort of, you, it's become gray. You can't, it becomes nice if you, you fall between both stools. Question over here. Yeah, I guess this is also about collaboration, sort of another topic, but um, it's on the topic of diversity. And I'm wondering how anyone has kind of feels moving forward in theater, because this whole kind of weekend is pretty white, which is what it is. And I'm just wondering if even in regional theater, um, it seems there's still like the black show and the white show, and you know, maybe an Asian show. Or and I'm wondering, in these collaborations, that taken into consideration, or it's like, well, the life of Africans will bring in African Americans to help out. Maybe our institutional people can speak to that? It's really hard. It's hard because, um, because I think one of the problems we find is that a lot of people that aren't sitting up here that are white uh, haven't had the opportunity to get to the level that they can collaborate with the people that they want to collaborate with. And it's a really, it's a really tragic situation because you want to bring someone that's experienced on with your team as you can. And so when you're doing a typical project like Take Flight or something where it's not about a specific uh, ethnic group or whatever, obviously the minute you do, you're going out and you're looking for these people and the people haven't had that much experience doing just a regular show, just to be able to have the experience to do it. That's, that's what happens. That's the state of the art. And it's, it's really really sad and um, I don't know what I don't know what to, I don't know what we do about it it's hard out in institutional theater where we are because so much of our audience is also uh, it's also audience development the same thing developing an audience that is as diverse as possible it's hard to do it it's really hard it's much easier in New York than out in your regions wherever you are unless you happen to be in a an area that has a large population of a certain um, ethnic group I don't know what the solution is, but I know every time we've come up with that and we've said we should try to find someone, we should try to be diverse, finding that person actually that fits the right group is not easy. It's not. Todd, have you had experience in this area? I'm actually, uh, I'm sort of a convert on non-traditional casting. I, I, I kind of, at the beginning, I was sort of reticent about it, particularly in the Bible. Uh, but I have to say, it's probably not the most popular thing to say in a particular setting, but the biggest resistance gotten has been from directors. Uh, 
um, the Bible. The biggest resistance we've gotten have been from the directors who, on revivals of plays, um, deep down, it's not that they don't believe in non-judicial casting, but deep down inside when they're doing the play and casting it, particularly when it's a revival and not a contemporary play, they see it as white actors because that's the way it was done originally and that's the world that those people were in. And the times when we've been able to convince them not to use white actors, even, you know, mixed couples, and you know, actually after five minutes the audience goes along with it. But it's still, it's still unfortunately is a bit of a, a struggle constantly. <coughs> Less so with contemporary plays where again, because the world around us now is so much more in everybody's eyes, so much more diverse that it's easier than for them to do that with a contemporary play. But I, I have a lot of trouble with the revivals and, uh, and uh, it, it's just constantly sort of asking our casting people to push the directors to go in that direction. And um, yeah. Would that not be helped if we had directors of color? More directors of color? Probably, yeah. Sure. Because then that problem surely would not pertain to quite such a degree. Because I think, I think the point that you brought up is a good one, which is you really want to, you know, you, I see in so many theaters, including my own, this sort of like, okay, it's the annual black play. You know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with doing, obviously, the annual black play, but if that's really your efforts towards trying to get a more diverse audience, it just doesn't work because what happens is you get a slightly more diverse audience for that play, and then the next, you know, the, I mean, I if I go to let's say Manhattan Theater Club and see um, the whatever play they might be August Wilson play or something, and you know, a quarter of the audience is black, and I think isn't that really cool at Manhattan Theater Club? I'm just picking on them. It's true of any theater. And then the next play that I go to Manhattan Theater Club, it's back to 100% white. You know, so it, the just doing quote unquote black play doesn't seem to do anything towards permanently di diversifying the, the audience members. And I think, I think that the non-traditional casting idea, is, that's not the be-all and end-all either, but I think it would certainly help if people saw a more diverse group of actors in the plays, in the quote-unquote white plays, you know what I mean? We have time for one more I question. Think, you know, if, uh, I mean, we talked about it a lot. I think we're all embarrassed as an industry about how white the theater community in New York and the theater business. And I think maybe we sit around and we think that a show will make a difference, but a show doesn't usually make a difference. I think what Todd is saying is true. Non-traditional casting is a program, and it's a program that started with equity and was advocated for years, and people started to catch on to it and to advocate it. Uh, what we haven't come up with as a, as a, as a community, uh, if there is any community, which is part of the big issue, but what we haven't come up as a community is a program to make the theater less white. And the only way it's going to happen is if we get together and we do that. I think we may have 30 seconds question. Just one last question over here. Yeah, I should just uh, send off that question, but even in a, a broader way about the future of the American musical and collaboration with people outside of the circle of the theater community in New York. And it, it seems to me um, that there isn't a ton of collaboration with people who are doing incredible, uh, vibrant, and also minorities, and, and it plays into that in other parts of the artistic community in this country and, and abroad, as far as like 
popular music and, and film and stuff like that. Is that because we feel that that doesn't necessarily lend itself to a musical or to theater, or because um, there's a certain resistance to using people outside the circle? And when they do, like someone like Paul Simon, he wasn't welcomed definitely by everyone, and maybe because of the piece, or maybe because of something else. I'd just love to hear it how. It was the piece. I mean, the show wasn't good. Yeah, yeah, but, but long before the show even yeah, opened. But I mean, like, on serious money will talk. If this Billy Joel musical comes in and it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, every rock star in the world will attempt to write, as they are right now. They're, you know, they're all trying to do it. I mean, I think, what you, I, that's, I guess, my question. Is it, is it simply a matter of... I mean, we're desperate to get new scripts. We're desperate to get new musicals. I mean, um, the more the better. So I think and the, more, the odder the way you can find one, we, I mean, we don't love. As they succeed, that's when it will. Liz, I'll have the last word. Oh, well, I don't want to have the last word. <laughs> <laughs> but with to we um, we're producing and play Top Dog Underdog, and and we we actually are having a CD cut because Mo Steff is in in the play, and he's a hip hop artist, and he's written a couple of songs for it, and there's one original song in the piece that Susan Laurie Parks wrote, and. Obviously, it's a great irony that for a play, we'll probably have airplay for these for these songs, where with a new musical, we rarely get airplay, because we are, I mean, this is music, a, a contemporary idiom. Um, so, yes, we do need to, you know, try to bring artists in. And we're all watching this musical. show. I mean, look, this show won the Pulitzer Prize, it's a, you know, should be a big hit. And, we'll, you know, will people come to see it? And if people do come... And, and we do have an un we've, we've had a huge, obviously, effort to bring in a diverse audience, and we have succeeded. It looks like New York, the audience, which is, you know, a wonderful thing, but whether it's a one-time thing or not, we all want to build on it if we can. I think, the theater, I think the theater in New York is a very big tent. I think people are very open to anybody of talent to come in and work. All they have to be is good. Anybody who's good, all of us will glom onto. And you see one person comes in and they do something well, and everybody wants to hire them, and everybody wants to hire everybody else who does what they do. Uh, we've run out of time now. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, is it a quickie? Is it a quick question? I want to thank this wonderful panel for their comments. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.